Thank you. Thank you for the scripture, and thank you to each one of you. I used to um, be a lot more judgy about this scripture, and then I got old, and then I had kids, and then I started falling asleep everywhere. <laughs> and I started to connect to Peter and James and John a little bit more. Um, but yeah, right? It teaches me new lessons about discipleship every day. So we're going to be talking about friendship, but before we do that, um, I wanted to invite you to pray with me. If you are the praying kind, please pray. God, Thank you for putting us here today, for giving us love for one another and for you and for the world, for giving us questions that we have yet to answer, for giving us doubt, for giving us certainty, for giving us sleep, for giving us the gift of being awake. God, we ask that as we spend this time here today and as we go out into your world to continue to be the church, to be you in the world, together we ask that your grace would orient our bodies and our souls and our words, that the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts would be yours, and that if they aren't, if we should slip, if we should err, if we should harm, if we should hurt, that we would be able to do what the word repent means, turn around and see that you are still there for us as you have always been, and we can continue to seek being loving, friendly people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, before we get into the friendship piece of this scripture, I want to point out something that I think is always really helpful when we read this part of Mark to remember, which is that if you ever struggle in your prayer life or in your um, walking with Christ life, in your trying to become more loving or a more transparent window to Christ's love life, it's helpful to remember that in this passage, as in many in the Bible, the opposite of praying is not cursing or damning or harming. The opposite of praying is sleeping. <laughs> this isn't the only time this happens, that someone is supposed to pray um, or that someone goes to be with another and they can't help but fall asleep. Or sleeping is presented as the way that we fall apart on one another, the way that we betray or fall short of God's ideals for one another and for God. And I think it teaches us not only um, about the risk of falling asleep um, in a metaphorical way, not just a literal way, on all that God is doing in our lives and all that God is doing in the world, but it teaches us a little more about what prayer is. Because if prayer is the opposite of falling asleep, then prayer is being awake, alive, awake, and alert was the cheer we used to say every day at camp when I was little. I'm alive, awake and alert, alert, awake and alive. Um, that the, the opposite of sleeping is being awake. And so something about prayer is being alive, being awake, being alert to whatever is happening. It's not about controlling whatever is happening. It's not about determining or seeing the truth of all that is happening always or all the time. It's about being alive and awake to God and to what God is doing and to the way that God is present for us. And if you're struggling in your prayer life, um, I always encourage people to set a new goal rather than being the best prayer or the longest prayer or the one who gets the most prayers answered, um, to set a new goal of being awake to what God is doing, of trying to notice, <laughs> to be alert to one thing that God is doing today, and that that's the start of a really biblical prayer practice, which is... Um, becoming more attuned to who God is so that we might not fall asleep on the possibilities God is offering us. So be awake as much as you can. 
which requires sleeping sometimes, I will say. <laughs> but friendship, what does the scripture have to teach us about friendship? What do Jesus's relationships with his many friends, not only the 12 disciples who were used to, um, but Mary and Martha, these other people with whom Jesus forms these ongoing, really intimate relationships of faith formation and relying on one another and sharing what's going on in their life. What do we have to learn from their friendships? The last few weeks, we've really concentrated on the things we need to cultivate in our life to make friends, to, to develop quality friendships. And those are vulnerability and time. We need to put the time in, and we need to be more open than we want to be. And whenever we do those two things, friendship will start to develop. But we haven't talked as much about some of the barriers that we face, even when we get time, even when we dare ourselves to be vulnerable, some of the barriers we face in friendship. And some of those are the barriers that culture puts in front of us, the way that we think about what friendship is and what has to be. And then the biggest barrier, the one we're going to talk about at the end, is ourselves. <laughs> that as a couple of you pointed out in our testimony, we aren't always the best friends. <laughs> we aren't always kind. We aren't always loving. We aren't always forgiving. We aren't always there for each other. And how do we cultivate friendship in a world where we are imperfect and we might fall asleep on each other? So we're going to use this uh, scripture of Jesus and his friends to think about that, but I also want to play a little video for you about the first minute and a half, if we can get it going. This is the tech question. I think it's going to work in our new set. It's always an adventure. You may recognize the folks in this video as it comes up. If you don't, I'll tell you who they are in a minute. I think it's working. I'm looking at the booth, seeing people. Yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> Oh, oh, you had a glimpse. <laughs> so these are the, the five hosts of the, of the show Queer Eye on Netflix. I'm old enough that I remember the first Queer Eye. Um, uh, but this one is even better, even more lovely. And this is, um, uh, we'll send the whole video out through Facebook, but they did some friendship tests with one another. And I want to show you the first minute or two. We're going to watch exercise one. Some of us. 
Okay, now I'll pause. <laughs> you'll, you'll get to see the rest of the video later, just as long as you like the Facebook page, so that's on you. Um, so there are a couple things in this video where I think we see lessons we've been learning from the scriptures all month, which is that friendship, whether it's Jonathan and David's, Ruth and Naomi's, everyday friendship, Jesus' friends, takes vulnerability and time, right? You can see how awkward it felt when they first started staring at each other, even though they're already friends, right? They already are intimate. They already love each other. It is very strange and awkward to open up to someone and be fully present to them. But when they lean into it, when they give it time, something really beautiful starts to happen, and they start to feel emotions, and they start to cry. You can also see why it takes time in other ways. Um, for Karamo and Tan, right, from day one, they connected. They felt like friends. They felt like buddies. Bobby and Jonathan, not so much. Bobby was a little bit like, is this person for real? <laughs> can I actually have a relationship? It takes time to give people the chances they need to show us who they really are, for us to get over our stuff, yep. to see that this person might be full of value and full of wonderful things. We see some of the lessons we've been giving about vulnerability and time here, but there's also a lesson behind this video that I think is a big barrier that gets in the way of a lot of our friendships. And this gets to my personal theory about why Queer Eye has been so, so popular. Um, I think one is that it's fun to watch lives be transformed, right? This is, um, you, it's fun to watch people change and it's fun to watch people grow, but I think a big part of why people have loved this TV show is seeing the friendship between these five men and I think it matters that they're men. I think it's really, really rare for us to see men allowed to be emotionally intimate with one another, <laughs> for us to see men being vulnerable with one another and sharing what's going on and saying their feelings. Um, and there's something deeply compelling and attractive about seeing people who normally you think aren't allowed to be open and aren't allowed to care and aren't allowed to love, to just like care and be open and love all over the place. <laughs> and then they teach other people how to do it too. If any of you have ever watched this show, half the lessons for the people they help are very concrete, right? Like, use a moisturizer, say hello to people you wanna go on dates with, like, don't have trash on the floor, you know, like the, the, the half the lessons are concrete, but the other half of the lessons are, you can be yourself and you can share your feelings, and we will love you, and we will not make fun of you. Um, and I think it's that second half of the lessons that we are having such trouble with as a culture <laughs> that people feel so desperate with that they love watching this, and they feel moved by it, because when you see people be that way, you feel like you can be that way too. And I think it speaks to something about how we've set up intimacy in our culture, that Karamo and Tan, as they're staring into each other's eyes, as they end, Karamo makes this joke, right? I wanna make out with you now. They both are married. They both are, one is engaged and one is married. Um, but I think what he's picking up on is, uh, it is rare for us to look into one another's eyes in a way that's not about romance or sex. <laughs> it is rare to be intimate in a way that people then don't assume is about this one true pairing romantic relationship. It's rare for us to practice intimacy in friendship and with all kinds of people. And so there are these barriers, barriers set up for men showing emotional intimacy at all, barriers a la when Harry met Sally for 
men identifying and women identifying people to have friendships with each other. <laughs> um, barriers for any two people who might end up in a romantic relationship to saying to one another, no, I actually want to be friends. <laughs> I actually want to explore what that would mean for us. We talk about friend zoning as if it's a bad thing or a real thing, which it's not, right? Um, that, that somehow being friends would be a lesser tier. Um, a, a worse part of your life, a consolation prize, rather than friendship as a beautiful, full prize of its own that we might want to seek after and that most of us need in our lives. Most of us need intimacy with people who aren't our family and with whom we don't have a romantic or sexual relationship. We need emotional intimacy with friends. And the culture is setting us up to think that certain kinds of friendships are harder than others. Um, you just think that what you see is easier than what you don't see. So if we don't see a lot of cross-generational friendships, we think they're not easy and we don't pursue them. If we don't see a lot of cross-racial friendships or a lot of cross-neighborhood friendships in Chicago, right, we think that those things are impossible and so we don't pursue them. Part of pursuing friendship is going to be us practicing these friendship skills. Intimacy, vulnerability, time. But part of it is also forcing our minds to remember that many, many more kinds of friendship are possible than we think. <laughs> that friendship might be possible with all kinds of people we're encountering in our everyday life who we normally don't think of as candidates for friendship because we're encouraged to think that we can only be friends with people who are mostly almost exactly just like us. And that's the first lesson about who Jesus brings up this mountain with him. Um, his disciples, in some ways, the disciples were similar to one another. They all lived um, in the same general area, but they were from different cities. They were of the same general religious group, but they were of really different sects within that religious group, um, individual communities. And normally, these folks would not have been brought together. Um, the most common occupation among the disciples, from what little we know in the Bible, is fisher, right? There's a lot of people who, who do fishing, but there's a lot of people who don't. Most particularly, um, there's a tax collector in the group, right? Which was a profession that nobody who wasn't a tax collector really liked. <laughs> wasn't a person who you would have been friends with. Wasn't a person who you would have gotten along with. They're of different ages, and they appear from the way that they talk, we can't be sure, to be of different educational backgrounds. Um, and the disciples really appear to be of different ages, um, different stages in their life. And yet Jesus says to all of them, come and follow me. And they form one of the most intimate, thoroughgoing, ongoing groups of friends that we've ever seen, right? A group of 13 people who travel around together for three years and never end up uh, separating until the end in which they find the most profound kind of betrayal but then also the most profound kind of recovery from it. I think we see in this the way that Jesus is encouraging us to think of intimacy as something we can share with all kinds of people and that we might be able to challenge ourselves in that way. These women aren't here on this day when Jesus goes up the mountain at Gethsemane, or he's in Gethsemane, sorry, I keep on saying go up the mountain because that's the other time that they fall asleep on him. He's in Gethsemane. They fall asleep on him a lot. The disciples are not the best of friends always and in every moment of their lives. Um, Jesus formed relationships with people who he was socially absolutely not supposed to form relationships with. And I'm thinking particularly of Mary and Martha. Mary and Martha, with whom Jesus was so close 
that they felt able to call on him when their brother Lazarus died and demand that he show up and when he didn't show up on time, tell him how deeply he had disappointed them. Right? He forms that kind of intimacy with these uh, women. And in the society in which he grew up, that kind of intimacy with women was not a thing that was supposed to happen, particularly for an unmarried man, partic particularly for an unmarried religious traveler. But Jesus is showing us tax collectors, fisher people, people across the gender identity spectrum. I can form intimacy and relationship with all of them, and so can you. So this is the first thing to remember if you're feeling like there are barriers to your friendship circle, even if you started to practice intimacy, even if you started to practice vulnerability, even if you started to put in the time. One of the things might, that might be happening is that you are cutting off friendships before they even begin because of your assumptions about who you can manage to be friends with and who you can manage to have in your life. Because every single human being is a human being who God made with glory and with dignity and to be worthwhile. And I, this is the greatest gift of being a pastor. Every single coffee I have with a person, I learn something new about the magnificence of God's creation. Every person is extraordinary. And there's no person who intimacy with wouldn't teach you something new about the world. So stop cutting people off. Stop imagining you can only be friends with people who are your age or your type or your whatever. That is hard. <laughs> but it's also the easier barrier to overcome of the barriers to friendship that we see in this scripture. The biggest barrier when it comes to having friends, sustaining friends, is really us. Nobody makes Peter and James and John fall asleep. Nobody makes them not be there for Jesus. Nobody makes them not listen when he shares that he is in enormous and dreadful pain. Nobody makes them not hear him. They just don't. They just don't hear what their friend is saying, maybe because it's too painful for them to face, right? If they really look at what's going on with him, how scared he is, they might have to face how scared they are about what happens next. And that's a little too much, and so they fall right asleep. That's something I also learned about this passage from having children. When my daughter was five months old, um, anytime we walked into a room that was too loud for her, she would just fall asleep, <laughs> right? It was, uh, this is too much. I have too much in my senses. I have too much in my emotions. I, I opt out. I opt out of the world. Um, and I think about that now whenever I read this passage. It's not just that Peter and James and John are sleepy, right? I think it's this sort of defense mechanism. What's happening here is too much for me. I opt out. Jesus' prayer and Jesus' desperation and seeing this man who I admire and who I love and who I believe to be our Savior and know to be our Savior be this scared and need me is too much for me and I opt out. I can't take it. And I think we do that in our friendships all of the time in one way or another. Some of you were honest enough to share how that happens for you because it happens for all of us differently in our testimony time. For some of you, it's um, the attitude towards planning, right? Like do people feel like they're a task or do they feel like they're a person? For some of you, it's when that other person fails you. Do we have the capacity to forgive or do we not have the capacity to forgive? If someone ghosts on us, um, do we then ghost on them forever? Or do we say, maybe I should give them another chance? Each one of us has some different individual barrier that is somehow preventing us from when we could have a friend, 
engaging in that intimacy and that vulnerability and that being there for them that Jesus is asking of Peter and James and John. Each of us has our own thing. And it's going to take some self-exploration to figure out what your thing or many things are. <laughs> Something I realized a few years ago, and I am still on this journey, um, was... So something that's interesting for me about my personality that took me a really long time to learn is that I used to think that I was the least judgmental person in the world because that's what most people reflected back to me. Whenever I had a conversation, I wasn't shocked by what people said to me. I would take them as they were, and I thought of myself as someone who just didn't have judgment, wasn't critical at all. Um, and it actually was doing this personality test, the Enneagram, that everybody at UVC is obsessed with and that I was very skeptical of at first. Um, and, it, and it gave me a number where, like, the thing about that number is how critical and judgmental they were. Um, and I was like, whatever, I'm not critical or judgmental at all. Not even a little. Not even this much. And I started talking to the people close to me about it, and I realized... Um, I'm extraordinarily critical and judgmental. It's just that almost all of it is towards me and whoever is close enough to me that they become a part of me. <laughs> so if there's a little distance between me and someone, if I have a role in their life or uh, you know anything like that, when I'm your pastor, it's very easy for me to sort of feel like that person is who they are. I will learn from who they are. But the minute somebody becomes, say, my husband <laughs> um, or, or my best friend or my mom or someone who feels really close to me, all of that judgment I've been directing inward I also direct on them. And I wasn't even noticing it because I don't think of that as a part of who I am. But I all the time was dropping, are you sure you want to do it that way? Are you sure you want to date that guy? Are you sure you want to go to that place with my friends? Um, and they were correctly perceiving it as my judgment and my criticism of their actions, even though I was fooling myself into believing, right, that I was just like asking super supportive questions and helping them <laughs> along their journey and their way. Um, and the other thing I realized was that that criticism and judgment that I was directing towards myself was making me believe um, that I didn't deserve or need intimacy. A big thing that I learned about myself growing up is that I can let everybody else in the world know that this is a safe place for them to be sad or a safe place for them to be mad. But then when it comes to me actually sharing my sadness and madness, I'm like, no, I'm cool. I'm chill. I don't need to like share what's going on with me. And so... Um, the other thing I noticed I was doing was I would get really frustrated and angry that I would have all these conversations with my friends where I wasn't sharing anything about my life. Why is my life never coming up? Why don't they ever ask about all the hard things that are happening to me? And I was like nursing my cup of resentment and like how terrible my friends were never asking about me. And then I realized in discussing it with people who were close to me that any time someone asked about me, I would immediately turn it back on them. So the minute someone was like, how are you doing? I would be like, fine, and how's your puppy, right? Good, and how's your sister? Um, and I wasn't even noticing the opportunities they were giving me to be vulnerable because my defense mechanisms were so firmly in place at rejecting them, I did not even notice when they were happening. And so those were the two things I noticed were getting in my way, even in friendships I had already established. Those were the things about me. Those were the things about my personality that I needed to stop secretly judging people and pretending that I wasn't, right? Which both meant acknowledging when I was doing it and saying like, I'm actually worried about that thing you're telling me. Tell me if it's stupid to be worried, but like that's how I feel, right? Rather than just sort of passive aggressively saying, oh, do you sure you don't wanna like
like have a second thought about that? Um, that was a thing I needed to work on. And when people asked me about myself, I needed to actually answer <laughs> instead of rejecting it and then being frustrated that they hadn't forced me to tell them later. And so those two things I've been working on a lot these last couple of years. And I will say, I'm not sure I'm ever going to not be working on those things. I'm not sure those are ever going to not be barriers to my friendships. I don't know if Peter, James, and John ever kept awake the whole time. <laughs> I don't know if they ever found a way to let go of their fear and their scaredness. But they definitely improved. They definitely got better. Peter messes up a lot of times in a row, but each time it's a little less of a mess up, right? He rejects what Jesus has to say, and Jesus yells at him. And then the next time, he doesn't openly reject it. He just falls asleep instead. <laughs> and then the next time, he says, oh, I don't know her, right, three times. Um, but then he recognizes it the next morning and apologizes and make amend makes amends and asks for forgiveness. And I have to believe that that process of getting a little better, of learning a little more, of leaning more into his barriers so that he could have more intimacy and friendship was lifelong and that it can be lifelong for us. James and John, Jesus called the Thunder Brothers because of how bad their tempers were. <laughs> they would yell and scream at people. And yet they became, or John in his long life, an extraordinary evangelist in whom many trusted and to whom Jesus entrusted the care of his mother. People can grow. People can change. I've done it a little bit, and I know you can too. There are many barriers to friendship. We don't have enough time. We're scared to be vulnerable. The culture is telling us we can only be friends with certain people. But you're never going to make friends unless you overcome the biggest barrier to friendship, which is what's ever going on inside of you. And that's where small groups, spiritual discipleship, therapy, all of the things, self-knowledge and self-reflection are going to help us. Because intimacy is one of the greatest gifts that God has given us, and we don't want to be turning it away without even knowing that we've said no. We want to say yes to God's gift. We want to say yes to God's gift of people, yes to God's gift of friendship, yes to God's gift of being totally loved in all of the messed upness of who we are. We want to say yes to friendship even when we're messed up and especially in that time. So get to know yourself, get to know what your barriers are, and try and inch them down just a little bit each day. And if you share them with people here, we can do that work together and try and become a community of intimacy and vulnerability and knowing that we're not always good at it, but that we can get better. Amen.